Merry Christmas, everyone. Wonderful to see everybody, and hope you have a wonderful holiday and that you have a chance to remember what this is all about, a Savior being born to us. Uh, If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, I'll be looking at Luke chapter 2, and I just want to ask a couple of questions and then consider one very important answer. Luke chapter 2 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them at the inn. First question I want us to think about tonight is, how could something so ordinary be so extraordinary? I mean, these are just ordinary people. They're not wealthy people. They're not people in power. They're not influencers. They have no followers, unless you count maybe a donkey or a goat or something like that. This is just a carpenter and a pregnant teenager. And this is just an ordinary town. It's not an influential town like San Francisco or L.A. or New York City. This is just the little town of Bethlehem. And in many ways, this is just an ordinary birth. There's nothing supernatural about the birth itself. They're facing ordinary problems. They have to obey uh, imperfect government as they go back to their hometown for a census. There's no room at the inn. Everything's very ordinary. So how could this be an event that changed the world? How could this ordinary thing be so extraordinary? Now we know it's extraordinary because look what the angels say in verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Let's jump down to verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. So the second question is this, how can great fear be replaced by great joy. You see a pattern. Whenever people encounter the glory of God in the scriptures, whether through an angel or some vision, there's always the same response. They're terrified. It says the shepherds were filled with great fear. Already in this gospel, when an angel appears, they're like, what? And they're filled with great fear. Zechariah, filled with fear. Mary, greatly troubled. Joseph, fearful. When an angel appears, this is the typical response when we see something glorious and not from this world. But not only is it the typical response, it's actually the right response. Because most of us spend our lives kind of convincing ourselves or pretending that this life is all there is. And as long as I'm better than, you know, somebody else, then I'm going to be okay with God in the end of it all. We sort of have, you know, the philosophy of, like, you don't have to be the fastest person running away from the bear. 
You just don't want to be the slowest. We say things like, well, well I'm, you know, I make, my, I make mistakes, but, you know, I'm not like my coworkers. I mean, they're crazy. Or like, well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely, you know, committed some sins, but I haven't really hurt anybody. Well, I'm, yeah, maybe I killed people, but they were bad people. I mean, I didn't kill any good people. And so we come to church, but why do we come to church? I think because many of us, we have this sinking fear that maybe we haven't done enough. That maybe we aren't as good as we think. And we're right. We haven't done enough. We can't do enough. And the time when that is the most evident is when you're face to face with the glory of God. Luke meets Jesus. Luke's, or Peter meets Jesus. He's fishing. Hasn't caught anything all day. Jesus comes, teaches them some things, and says, hey, why don't you go throw your nets out again? And Peter's like, dude, we fishing all day. We didn't catch anything. And what happens? He lowers his nets. They bring in so many fish that they need another boat to bring in the fish. Do you remember Peter's response? He doesn't fall down in worship. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. We see that in the Old Testament too. Isaiah the prophet, he gets a vision of the glory of God. And what are his words? Woe is me, I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have beheld the Lord. What should happen when the glory of God meets a sinful people? Destruction should happen. Judgment should happen. And not because God is mean, but because God is holy and he's glorious. We can't even be in his presence unless we're like him. So how can great fear be replaced with great joy? The glory of God coming to a sinful earth should be bad news of great despair for all people. But what does the angel say? Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy for all people. How is that possible? How can great fear be replaced by great joy? But there's another question I want us to think about in this passage. It's in verse 14. The angels, they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's well pleased. So another question, how can there be glory to God and peace on earth? Now understand here, when he says peace on earth, he doesn't mean like, oh, I'm stressed out and God's going to give you peace. He doesn't even mean world peace, that we're not going to fight with each other, or countries aren't going to war with each other. He means like war and peace, peace. With God, peace. The absence of hostility with God. This world has been at war with God since Adam and Eve ate fruit in the garden. You've been at war with God throughout the course of your life. Now, we don't like to think about it in those terms, but in our heart of hearts, we know that's exactly what we're doing. And now God offers peace to a world at war with him. Now, before we think about how can he do that, let's think just for a minute, why would he do that? We rejected him. He didn't reject us, and now he's coming to get, get us back and make peace with us. No, we rejected him. 
We didn't want anything to do with him. And now he's coming to us, the people that rebelled against him, and he offers peace. Why? Because he is a fountain, a never-ending fountain of love and goodness. And his great delight is to pour out life and love to people that don't deserve it. That's who he is. I mean, what comes to your mind when you think about God? I think we have two different pictures of God, usually. One is this, that he's sort of the cosmic policeman. And he's got his radar gun. Sorry, Greg, my CHP friend. And he's just sitting there on the side of the freeway, and he just hopes that you'll just go right over 65 miles an hour so he can bust you and punish you for your wrongdoing. That's how a lot of us think God is like. That is not who God is. He does not delight to punish. It says he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Now, another picture of God we have is that he's sort of like Santa Claus, that he's kind of a good-natured guy, but at the end of the day, he's keeping records. And he's tallying up whether you've been naughty or nice, and he'll be good to you if you're nice, but not if you're naughty. But that's not who God is either. He's a loving father who wants to do good to his creation, even the creation that rebelled against him. Moses, in the Old Testament, he asked, can I see the glory of the Lord? Can I see you for who you are? Can I see you face to face? And God says, no, no one can see me face to face and live. But he says, this is what I'll do. I'll pass by. I'll let my glory pass by, and I'll declare my name to you. And this is God's name that he declares to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's his name. He's merciful. He doesn't give you what you deserve. He's gracious. He loves to give you things that you can never deserve. He's long-suffering. He never flies off the handle. He's never impatient with us. It says he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He overflows with love and faithfulness. I think some of us come up to God with our little Dixie cup, and we're like, could you fill my cup with love? And it's like Niagara Falls starts pouring on you. The cup's not going to hold it. Nothing's going to hold it. He pours out love and faithfulness all the time to people that don't deserve it. And more than that, it says that he forgives. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Every crooked tendency and action in you, he'll forgive every deliberate act of rebellion where you saw the line and you stepped over it willingly and purposefully, he'll forgive it. Every moral failure that you've ever committed, he will forgive it. It's who he is. That's why he offers peace. But now the big question is, how? How can he offer peace? You see, the last part of his name, that when he passed by Moses, we said all those good things, the last part of his name, he said, I am a God who will by no means 
clear the guilty. So how can there be glory to God and peace among men? In other words, how can he offer peace and still be God? Because his name is, I will by no means clear the guilty. And I will make sure that they pay for their sin. He's a just God. So how can he accept us? When we're sinners, we're guilty. Now some of our thoughts are, well, we'll become good enough. I'll start doing good things. And those good things, I'll get enough of them on the scale that they'll start to outweigh the bad things, and then God can accept me. But that's not how guilt works. You commit one sin, you're guilty. You could do a thousand good things. It doesn't take away from the fact that you are guilty. And none of us have committed just one sin. We've committed thousands of sins, millions of sins. I mean, we commit sins daily, even hourly, minute by minute at times. So how can God, who says his name is, I will by no means clear the guilty, how can he offer peace to us and still be God? Well, the answer is in the manger. How can something so ordinary be so extraordinary? Well, the birth was ordinary, but the child was not ordinary. Look back at verse 11. Who is this child? How can there be good news of great joy for all people? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's who's born in the manger, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the one who will save us from our sins. He's the one that's going to exchange our great fear for great joy. He's the Messiah. He's the priest that we need who mediates between God and man. He's the prophet that we need to reveal God to us. He's the king that we need who's going to reign forever. But he's not just a man. He is the Lord. He can reveal God because he is God. He can mediate between God and man because he is God and man. He can reign forever because he's eternal and his kingdom will have no end. But one last question, how does a birth answer those questions? A birth doesn't answer those questions. Only a death can answer those questions. Verse 14, who gets peace from God? Those with whom he is well pleased. How can God be well pleased with us? Again, we think, by, we'll do good. We'll do good things, and then he can be well-pleased with No, that won't work. How can he be well-pleased with us? Well, because it pleased the Father to crush his son in our place. Isaiah 53 says this, referring to our Savior, born in a manger, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Listen to this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And because God was pleased to crush him, he can offer peace to us, and he can be well pleased with us, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done. Peace on earth, and God is still God. He's still glorious. He's still just. Peace on earth, and God has still by no means cleared the guilty. He poured out the punishment for the guilty on his son. Peace on earth, because he was punished in our place. But as Larry reminded us this morning, death was not the end. He was raised to life, and if we confess our guilt, if we come to God and we say, I don't deserve anything from you. Your coming into my life should be bad news of great despair because my sins are great. But we accept his payment. We tell God, I could never right my wrongs. I could never pile up enough good to take away my bad. My sins are too great. I could never do enough. But Jesus, he did it in my place. He lived the life I should have lived that I never could have lived, and he died the death that I should have died, and my punishment was poured out on him. If you believe that, and you turn from your sin, and you say, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for you. I want to live for my Savior, who was born as a man, lived a perfect life, and died a horrendous death so that he could offer peace to me. If you do those things, confess your sin, accept his substitution, and turn from your sin, not only is he raised, you will be raised with him. And that is good news of great joy for all people. Luke 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father, may we be like the shepherds who marveled that good news was being preached to them instead of bad news. That their great fear could be turned into great joy. That there could be glory to God in the highest and peace among men between God and man. We don't deserve any of these things. But that's exactly why your son came. It was your plan to reconcile a sinful world back to yourself through the death of your son. It was your delight to pour out love to a sinful people. And it was the son's delight to go on a mission from his father to rescue people that were in rebellion. Lord, I pray that that is the overriding thought in our hearts as we celebrate Christmas tomorrow. 
as good as the presence may be, as good as the time with family may be, that more than anything, we would marvel and wonder and glorify you for rescuing us, for sending a Savior. Lord, if there's someone here that has, ne has not yet bowed their knee to you, may they do it tonight with joy. May they see you are an ever-flowing fountain of love and that you provided a way for them to be reconciled to you, that they put their trust in your Son and find that you forgive sin and you offer peace and you will raise them to new life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.